Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, this uh, portion of our retreat together, we nicknamed the Jew in the Lotus. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, I guess it was a popular book. Um, I think it's called The Jew in the Lotus is the book. Oh, this is The Jew and the Lotus. So you get to sit in my lap. <laughs> the Jew and the Lotus. That's so kind. <laughs> or the other way. <laughs> um, the idea was that after uh, two days of interviews with people, we would be able to have a discussion about some of the topics and issues that have come up during uh, the, our time together. And um, so we'll talk uh, together, have a conversation, and then at the end maybe we can leave some time if people want to add to it. Does this sound reasonable? Oh, could you come sit closer? That's better. Two years ago, I uh, practiced at a monastery in uh, Kyoto. Uh, The place where I practiced was 700 years old. Um, The gardens around the meditation hall were 300 years old. And those are the rock and moss gardens that you think of when you think of Japanese rock and moss gardens. So uh, in the morning, uh, we wake up very early and do sitting and walking meditation. And uh, then as soon as uh, the meditation ends, we chant. And then we go outside and nobody spoke English. uh, And then I would be handed a tool to go work. And for the next hour and a half, it's just work time. And... um, I was handed an old wooden bowl. I bet you it was 300 years old also. Um, I wish I could describe to you what it smelt like there. 300 years of incense and cedar. And uh, so quiet. So um, my job was to get down on my hands and knees, crawl around in the garden, because at nighttime, the birds come and they look for worms in the moss. And they pick out pieces of moss, toss them, and then try and find the worm. So my job was to get down on my hands and knees and find the piece of moss that matched the hole of the same size for an hour and a half. So there were grown men 
on our hands and knees doing this work. Someone else's job is uh, when the little uh, maple keys fall to make sure they get picked up so uh, they don't sprout. And uh, it's very small, quiet work. After uh, doing this practice, the head monk, who I never knew, uh, spoke English, came up to me one day and said, what's your understanding of the bodhisattva vow? Which I talked about earlier, this vow to save all beings. And I said, oh, this work. And he said, um, all of spiritual practice is just taking care of things. All of spiritual practice is just taking care of things. Um, he uh, is uh, in his late 70s. Uh, he had a cancer in his hip three times. And uh, to watch him sit on the ground is really painful. It takes him so long to get on the floor. But then he just sits there. And um, I developed a real love for him, actually. Uh, every afternoon we would bathe. And I don't know if anyone here has spent time in Japan. But everything's done on the ground. So there would be these little showers that come out of the wall. And you would squat underneath them. And then you get this little rectangular towel. And you use it to soap up. And then you also use it to dry off. And uh, so I'd soap up and dry off shave my head and then I was done and he'd just be working on his elbow (laughs) and then I started noticing that every day uh, I'd be done and he'd be just getting going and I think to myself you're so clean (laughs) but actually I started to realize over my time with him that he wasn't washing he was taking care of himself he was massaging his arms and just going really slow, appreciating his body. It looked on the outside like it was time for bathing, but there was something else going on. Uh, in his garden, he had a cherry tree. You know, like the cherry blossoms tree you're all familiar with. But when they get really old, in the temples, they take little crutches made out of bamboo, and they hold up the branch, and then it keeps growing, and then they put another crutch under it. And then it keeps going. And after he said this line, all of spiritual practice is just taking care of things, I started seeing it everywhere. It's really easy to see in a monastery, but it's really hard work in your life, in the city, in your messy family. Seeing that taking care of things is really the heart of spiritual practice. So I thought I would tell the story to launch our discussion because I want to have a discussion about how the practices of Judaism, the practices of Buddhism, actually help us take care of our lives and take care of what's in our lives as opposed to getting into grand theological debate which could go on forever. My interest in joining this retreat and guiding this retreat and participating is just to find out how these practices can enrich my life. Because sometimes I find it really easy to take care of my life and the people around me, and sometimes it's really, really hard. I have an enormous community. I have two children. I have parents, grandparents. It's a mess. If you ever want to see a mess, join a spiritual community. Or sit on a shul board. (laughs) So how does the tradition of Judaism and Buddhism uh, teach us to really take care of things? Isn't that what's needed? Yes. 
I'm going to start from a bit of a different place uh, and a very similar place. Someone recently gave me a comic, uh, one frame, and underneath it it says, Why Jews Get So Much Done. And the image is a young Protestant-looking man running with a carrot hanging in front of his face. And behind him is a Jewish-looking man running with a dagger over his head. (laughs) It's hilarious, and it's heartbreaking. We've been talking a lot about spiritual practice, and it's not separate from my understanding and my experience. Um, Judaism, Jewishness, uh, is thoroughly history, culture, peoplehood, religion, practice, uh, and our History is not only dagger over the head, but a lot of it has been. A lot of Jewish history has been marginalization, persecution, Jews being targeted for annihilation. And... We figured out a lot about surviving. We figured out a lot about self-protection. We've learned a lot about how to face suffering um, and keep going. And we carry around deep trauma. Um, And it comes out in a lot of different ways. Uh, As you might have experienced from your own childhoods, getting hurt uh, and it not being safe enough to express that hurt ends up getting locked in in certain patterns. So a criticizing parent makes a person very sensitive to criticism. For example, maybe that person becomes very critical. Maybe that person does everything they can to avoid criticism. Hearing something in the present pulls up everything from the past. So it becomes very difficult to actually see what's happening in the present and respond intelligently. Somebody makes a comment, oh, your cooking's not that great. Suddenly, they've said, I have no value, for example. That might be what's ringing in the ears of somebody who's had that wound as a child. Our collective wounds as Jews get passed on in ways that we're often not conscious of. Kind of cultural karma. And so when the messages that you get, directly and indirectly, that you don't deserve to exist... The world would be better without you. You're disgusting. Uh, You're useful, especially if you have money. Um, Ways that Jews were positioned as middle agents, as tax collectors and money lenders, had power and access to the elite. 
and could be turned on in a second when the proletariat got frustrated, pained, poor, ready to lash out at those with power, the Jews could be scapegoated. So even if many of us haven't grown up with direct and clear anti-Semitism, we all walk around with some form of these wounds and patterns and coping mechanisms. Some really intelligent ways of coping and surviving that aren't necessarily useful in the present. You might know some Jews who are defensive. You might know some Jews who are pretty insular. You might know some Jews who have perfectionist tendencies because it's really important to be as good as you can be but also not draw too much attention. It's hard for a lot of Jews to be quiet and stop running. Hard. And it's not even necessarily in the face of anti-Semitism in a clear way. Just that agitation all the time that is so constant for so many of us, we don't even notice it. I went on a date not long ago with somebody who wasn't Jewish. (gasps) (laughs) Turn the recorder off. Uh, I married one. (laughs) Twice. (laughs) Two different ones. He was so relaxed. It was trippy. Wow. He was so easygoing and relaxed. And it was just different than Jews I had gone out with before. And there isn't one singular pattern. Um, And I'm speaking in generalizations, but we hold these patterns in different ways. And where for some Jews the reactivity is around self-protection and that kind of, if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back tenfold. Uh, You come after my kind, I'm going to get your kind. Um, And the sort of, we need to stay together and strong and united and um, all do the same thing and be the same way is one side of the reactivity. And the other side is, I want nothing to do with it. I'm not different. I'm not separate. Uh, I don't want to be isolated or lonely anymore. Um, I'm not that kind of Jew. I'm an okay kind. I'm, I'm Jewish, but I'm not too Jewish. What does it mean to be too Jewish? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've heard that as a rabbi. I'm Jewish. <laughs> so, so we have a lot of healing work to do. Every community and people has its own work to do. And I think everyone has been hurt in different ways, individually and collectively. So when I think about and engage with um, spiritual work as a Jew, it's not separate from all of that. And it's not limited to all of that. The more I practice, 
the more I can see what's mine to do in working and healing, the more it's clear that um, caring for one's own, healing one's own, is fundamental to healing the world, to caring for others. I don't mean healing the world in a vague, flitty sense. The individual relationships and work and commitments. Um, We can't skip the step of particularism to go right for the universal. It has to be in and through. And it's complicated because the tools of Judaism um, that I find so rich and beautiful are also thoroughly intermingled with ways that our ancestors have figured out things from a place of hurt. And it's hard to figure out which are the tools that are still deeply wise and moving each of us toward growing to be as courageous, as loving, as creative, as giving as possible. And which are the tools that keep us separate, afraid, uh, rehearsing hurt, I care very much about figuring that out, about doing that work. And I think it's important that a lot of Jews needed to leave Judaism, and so many turned to Buddhism to derive tools that they weren't finding in mainstream Jewish life. There's a joke you probably know, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Of a great guru who um, would come out every five years from seclusion and greet disciples. And people would come from all over the world on bus, in buggies, on mule, and come to see him. And you could say three words to the guru when you stood in front of him. And as all these disciples are lining up, there's this little Jewish woman holding her purse, walking slowly, her hips bothering her. And some of the young monks try to help her or asking her, are you sure you're in the right place? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I know where I'm going. And she waits in line. She waits for hours. She's getting closer. And they whisper to her, you know, you can only say three words to the guru. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. (laughs) And she finally stands face to face with the guru and she says, Sheldon, come home. (laughs) Which is funny and painful. What does it mean to come home? Um, 
I'm so excited and moved by everything that I've been learning with Michael, hearing you teach. It's beautiful. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm in. I'm hooked. <laughs> I want to keep learning with you. Um, and it's a, an open question that I feel like I'm holding in terms of um, what does it look like to engage in another tradition um, where I do feel so much resonance so much um, both sameness and um, difference that is rich and evocative. And I'm very careful about cultural appropriation or about picking and choosing from a tradition that is deep and rich and whole. So I hold that as a question. Because both traditions deserve to be honored, to be learned and engaged with. Um, So that the wisdom is really deep wisdom. I always imagine that there's like all these temples and they all have back doors onto an alley and at break everybody goes out and smokes cigarettes and talks to each other. Mm. That's my vision. (laughs) Um, Whenever you have a system it always creates a shadow. And the system can't see the shadow. So uh, my interest is in stepping outside of my training and engaging with other systems. Um, So uh, I was just teaching in Europe in many different kinds of communities. Here I am doing a retreat with a rabbi. Um, A few weeks ago I gave a TED talk where you're not supposed to talk about religion. Uh, next week I'm doing a two-day workshop with a neuroscientist from Brown University who studies the effects of meditators and fMRI machines. And then after that I go to UBC to talk to students in environmental law. So I have a crazy life. Um, But my interest is in the fact that I think for a tradition to really be alive, it has to be struggling with its history and engaged in the vocabulary of our culture at this time. And there are certain uh, ways that religion sometimes uh, is unable to engage in cultural dialogue. If a religion can't offer a solution to climate change, if a religion can't offer tools to deal with the incredible inequality in our economy, then over time, those religions get hollowed out. So uh, it's very, very uncomfortable to take something that you've practiced so deeply and then put it into dialogue with a completely different system. But then what happens is that system points out some of the assumptions in your system. So um, I'm working in a week with this neuroscientist. So she works at Brown University. She has her own fMRI machine. So she takes meditators who says they've had enlightenment experiences and she puts them in the machine. And then she sees if it's true. Because they can measure 
uh, movements that are happening in the brain that are and correlate that with traditional maps of meditation. And every year the Dalai Lama goes and visits her and looks at all the statistics. Then the second day of our work together is she uses her neuroscience research to critique mindfulness meditation practice. Her critique is that everyone loves mindfulness and it's impossible. It's impossible that it's good as everyone says it is. So she studies all the places it doesn't work. So it's really uncomfortable. The first day you're so proud of yourself because <laughs> you know you can see scientifically how great meditation practice is. And the second day is all the people it doesn't work for. And why? So... Um, yeah. So I mention this just because um, we can be very excited about how Judaism and Judaism and Buddhism work together. And also at the same time, it's really interesting to explore where things don't fit so well. Because that's actually the place where relearning happens too. Should we take some questions? Let's. Or observations? Let's go for smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have a question question about where they don't fit so well. I was um, leading a uh, meditation service a couple years ago, and I was using uh, a Jewish service, and I was using bells in between the parts of it. And someone came up to me afterwards and said they felt very uncomfortable. So I wonder if you could both talk about the use of bells in your practice. Um, in the Buddhist tradition, a lot of our practice um, is uh, comes out of monastic environments. Much, much more so. Or actually, I don't think that much of Jewish tradition comes out of no. I don't think you have monasteries. No. 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 Okay. So, um, because so much of the day in a monastery is in silence, uh, everything is controlled by bells. Um, so, uh, it's a signal. And there's different kinds of bells, and they happen at different speeds. Um, so, bells can be... It's really great to explain to people sometimes that bells are a way to keep the community... Uh, working together in such a way where you don't have to use so many words. Um, And if there is some religious form that makes somebody uncomfortable, it's good to investigate. What makes you uncomfortable about that? I I think I didn't really investigate it. I think Mm -hmm. the person in question associated bells with other religious traditions Mm -hmm. and felt uncomfortable, um, therefore having them in a Jewish um, Uh context. Yeah. I'm curious, was it Shabbat? Yes. So that may have been one dimension of it for them, that if they don't, uh, if they follow the halacha, the Jewish law of not playing music on Shabbat, a musical instrument, that may have been the discomfort. Um, the other discomfort may have been, it may have been more about that feels like a different religious practice. Um, and uh, whenever leading something, I think it's useful to be aware of people's discomfort. And then as a leader, you get to choose whether you change things because of people's discomfort or help them be with their discomfort. That's why I chose this retreat to chant in English. So you knew what it was you were chanting. And to do gentle bowing and not full bowing. Uh, In full bowing, uh, literally you fall down on the ground. And I thought we would wait until next year. (laughs) (laughs) And is why I chose some texts that um, that had some difficult stuff in them. I could have chosen much more sort of loving, embracing texts. Uh, and chose some of the Jewish stuff that's about law and boundaries and um, 
wanting to push there a little bit and see what we could work with. Our idea for next time was also to have Buddhist service, um, so you can get a feel for what that's like, and also um, in the afternoons to actually look at some of the Buddhist canon and, and read it. Because uh, I think a lot of people who are interested in meditation have actually never read a word of actually early teachings, and they're pretty incredible. And, and, and wanting to have Sanskrit as well. I thought you were going to say sex. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's another retreat. Um, but uh, just to note, we had an interesting conversation in the car about Hebrew and Sanskrit, um, both as vibrational languages. Um, and if, if you go to Israel, they say the holiest language is Hebrew. And if you go to India, they say the holiest language is Sanskrit. The holiest language. What does it mean to be like a vibrational language? Uh, what does it mean? Um, mm, <laughs> 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 um, the, the, the sounds and flow of sound. Um, uh, impacts the body and breath and vocal cords in a way that I find quite distinct. Um, meaning and sound are deeply interrelated. Um, and there are also traditions where those languages were developed around oral tradition. So the sound of the vocabulary makes it very easy to memorize things mm-hmm. because you feel them in your body in a way that's trickier in English, in my experience. Yeah. I'm drawn to Judaism for the intellectual piece, all the talking and asking questions and figuring yeah. things out. And I'm drawn to Buddhism for the non-intellectual part uh-huh. of the, as you were saying earlier, feeling in your body. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if either of you have anything to say about like bringing those together or reconciling them, or is it just yeah. two really distinct sides of two? Yeah. Religions. Well, first of all, Buddhism is incredibly intellectual. Um, intellectually very, very rigorous. Um, you just haven't been exposed to that this weekend. Um, so at the same time, though, I do think that uh, in contemporary access to the religious forms of Judaism and Buddhism, um, you guys think a lot in the Jewish tradition and talk a lot, and there isn't as much focus on dropping all of that. Um, But I would imagine there's places in the history of Jewish tradition where there has been that. Um, And uh, But just keeping it related to this retreat, I mean, being able to study and use your mind and then being able to just drop that, I think, is amazing. And that's something I really loved about the schedule. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Can I say one more thing? Yes, you may. While you're thinking about yes. that? Mm-hmm. Um, my training was in a particular form of Buddhism when I started which is the Theravada school uh, that the Vipassana practice comes out of. But my training is also in Zen. And in Zen, there is a practice. So Zen is the tradition of Buddhism that doesn't even think of itself as Buddhist. Because in the Zen tradition, which started with Bodhidharmas, I don't know, um, they felt that, that Indian Buddhism had sort of gotten too intellectual and analytic, And so they scrapped all the sutras, all the texts, and they developed a form of practice that was just about sitting and then um, doing a practice called koan practice, which I haven't talked about this weekend. But So I work in the Zen tradition doing koan practice. And the way koan practice works is your teacher gives you an old story. So, for example... um, there's an old story 
where the punchline is, what is the sound of one hand? Uh, no, clapping's not in there. Someone made that up recently. But, but it is like that. It's like, what's the sound of one hand? And the way you do a koan is when your mind gets calm, once you can do the basic kind of following your breath, when the mind is calm, you drop the koan. And then you go to the teacher and the teacher wants you to present the koan. And the way you present it is you show them the koan. So you'll go, you'll sit down in front of the teacher and in Zen you sit in front of your teacher very, very close to their face. Your knees are touching. So you're right there. You can't hide anywhere. Mm -hmm. And they say, show me. And you have to show your understanding. Without words? You have to show it any way you can. But you can't explain it. Like if you say, uh, well, the sound of one hand, (laughs) they'll ring this little bell they keep, which basically means get get out of here. (laughs) Uh, Or they'll hit you. And um, so I mention that because it's a very, very rigorous practice that gets you to use your mind in a completely different way that's spontaneous, incredibly creative, and it makes you so present that any kind of rehearsal you could tell. And um, I want to say that that's also intellectual. It's a way of using your intellect that is not comparing, contrasting, or anything like that. It's just totally immediate. And it's an amazing, amazing practice that's unique in religious traditions, is the koan practice. Um, Which I would say is very, very intellectual and not intellectual. So, uh, a couple of thoughts. There's a story in the Talmud of um, the Jews being persecuted by the Romans. And uh, these two rabbis, father and son, um, are accused of a particular action. They need, the, the Romans want to execute them, and they run and hide in a cave. And for 12 years, they bury themselves up to the neck in sand and study Torah. Uh, their clothes are off. They want to keep their clothes. Every day they get out of the sand, put on their clothes, pray, take their clothes off, back under the sand. And they're miraculously fed by a carob tree and a stream of water. Incredible image of Judaism. Living from the neck up, buried, um, engaged in Torah and imagination and law and life, Um, and they're like that for 12 months, 12 years, um, until they're told that it's safe to come out. Uh, And they come out, and one of them burns everything he sees with his eyes. Uh, And they're told to go back in the cave for another year. (laughs) Work on it a little bit more. You have to live in this world. Um, so they come out and one wounds and the other heals. That's one image. Set of images. Um, 17th century, Hasidic movement begins. Um, there's a lot that happens between there. <laughs> um, and... Uh, before I get to the Hasidic movement, it's worth saying that um, for all the love of word and intellect and thinking and um, Jewish practice is deeply embodied. We sit in a sukkah. For, for eight days, we're in these little huts um, that are fragile and exposed to the elements. And we can talk about What does it mean to um, experience your own vulnerability as human beings at the harvest time? And um, it's not about thinking about it and sit in it. Feel it and experience it and see what it's there to teach. 
Um, and that's true for putting on a talit, and that's true for so many practices. Um, many of us never had that explained to us or um, got guidance in experiencing it with the awareness that you're experiencing it rather than just, here's how you have to do it. Um, it's there. Um, and threads of Jewish mystical teachings and practices about all kinds of ways of being in the body, engaging in experience, experiencing the divine. Um, starting in the 17th century, uh, a, an orientation toward um, non-intellectual, that the, the intellectual is not primary as a way to reach God, that one can reach God, explore, express, be in life through song, nigan, through dance, um, joy, uh, emotion. And it gets developed more and more through that stream and thread. Um, And I find the Hasidic teachers to be deeply engaging and, and um, love the ways that they integrate the emotional, the intellectual experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you both very much for sharing your learning and your stories and your wisdom with us. I think you've given us really put a lot out there. Thank you. And you mentioned, uh, you said something about next time. It's on tape now. I guess my question, children have come up a lot uh, through this weekend. You uh-huh. both have told stories about how you were, the seeds were planted when you were younger, uh-huh. where you found inspiration through different yeah. experiences that you had. We talked about children, um, believing that children are born religious mm-hmm. in a certain way. Um, so I guess I, I'd like to hear, maybe mostly from Michael, but from, possibly from both of you, because I understand you do have two children. And how, so that my seven-year-old daughter doesn't have to wait till she's 48 mm-hmm. <laughs> before she starts to discover, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, this path. Um, yeah. The gratitude, you know, the seeking, yeah. to attain yeah. the ability to yeah. be more appreciated. Um, what are some things? And I know, I know that there's magic to it, and I know that it's personal and, mm-hmm. and all that. And, you know, we're doing our best to create an environment that will foster that. But are there things? I mean, how, how would you teach, um, you know, Buddhism for children? How, what would you teach well, I do. <laughs> I do. You do? Yeah. So, give me the top three. Um, <laughs> can I take them? Well, first of all, I'll just start with my own family. Okay. So, um, uh, my older son is 10. And uh, he's not interested at all uh, in practice. Uh, sometimes you bring him along to meditate and he doesn't care. Uh, but actually, he's in it all the time. Everyone in our community knows him or who's been around for a while, they know him, they've seen him grow up. Um, He loves lighting incense. He likes taking care of the altar. Uh, He likes the chanting. Um, So he's in it. My approach with him has always been, if we model the practice, then he'll get it at the deepest layer. Um, And maybe my eight-month-old will be a different character. And maybe he'll want to try meditating a little bit or try practicing yoga a little bit. Um, so I think it depends on the character. But the most important thing is that it's being modeled for them. Um, then, as they get older, it's a little bit different. Because, um, what's a short way of saying this? You... I think some of you might know that the age of puberty uh, in North America is now nine years old. 
um, it's getting younger and younger because of diet and pollution. And so adolescence has never been longer in human history than it is now. And also the death rate of adolescence has never been higher. So mostly this is because of drugs and drinking and driving and mistakes. Um, I work for an organization that I'm on the board of where we teach meditation and yoga to incarcerated youth. So many young people making so many mistakes. And so I think what needs to happen when people hit puberty is that one of the core teachings of the Buddha that I think kids need to hear is karma. That your actions really make a difference. Because when kids hit puberty, I think it's really important that they learn about values. Because once you hit 10, 11, 12, you start thinking a lot about impermanence. Even though adults don't offer much help because they give you answers. But actually, at that age, you become very aware that things are impermanent and that you're going to die. And then, as you get into high school and your social relationships get more complicated, then you're also aware not only are things are impermanent, but also yourself is a construct. High school students really get that. You know, you think you know who you are, but everything changes the next day. And the cure... Oh, if you keep going like this, you end up with nihilism, which is everything's changing, it's all a construct, who cares, doesn't matter what I do. I'm going to die, climate change, everything's going to hell. I'm just going to paint my room black and listen to Marilyn Manson or whatever your thing is. So I think that starting around puberty, it's really, really important to remember that the cure for nihilism is that your actions make a difference. And that's karma. That your actions have an effect. That you matter. You, you being alive matters. And so, to me, that is the, the, the spiritual peace, if you will, that can be couched in non-religious language that isn't being uh, taught to young people in a way that's going deep enough. And I would really like to see that peace articulated in a clear, clear way. Um, the Dalai Lama has developed a curriculum called Heart-Mind Education that the British Columbia school system has just taken on for this coming year that the Dalai Lama calls secular ethics for young people. And it's a way of talking about ethics in non-religious language for people over the age of 10. And... Uh, um, the BC school system is taking this on full, full throttle. So, so to me, um, that's maybe more important than getting kids to meditate. Is reminding them that they matter. You know, and um, so for those of you who are parents or you work with young people or you're around young people a lot, I think that teaching is. That's the one that's getting missed that I think young people really need to hear. You know, because, can I say one more thing? Are we running? Um, you know, I was saying I teach in a lot of different environments. And one thing that I've learned very recently is that when you talk to people younger than 25 years old, they call it Generation Y, whatever. As soon as someone's 25, you can say, and older, you can say things like, uh, carbon footprint, climate change, um, world's getting warmer, there's injustice in the economy, and they really listen to you. 
But when you talk to people younger than 25, they don't want to hear that. That all they want to hear about are solutions. Because that age group has grown up mm-hmm. hearing nonstop about how we're screwed. Mm-hmm. You see? And they're also the first generation of human beings to grow up with technology, embedded in technology in a very deep way. So you have to speak differently to that group. You have to speak about values. When you talk about ethics to those groups, they really like it. When you talk about their actions making a difference, they really listen. When you talk about um, uh, uh, climate change statistics, they're, they're not listening. Totally tuned out. So again, reaching young people, I think the way in is karma. Your actions make a difference. And, and that's, to me, uh, a deep spiritual teaching that can be couched in secular language that can reach people who are young. Well, just add a thought. Sorry, that went on for a while. No, moment. that was a beautiful answer and so important. Um, something that I often hear from parents who say, um, my Jewish experience was so coercive, so judgmental, I don't want to put that on my children, so I'm not going to give them anything. Like, I don't want them to, to hate it, so I'm just not going to do anything Jewish. And they'll decide when they grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, really not helpful. Because that's coercive in a different way. It's a non-option in a different way. Um, there are definitely ways to bring Judaism that aren't coercive. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are some very important teachings in Judaism that are countercultural to give young people and adults uh, a picture that there are different options. Shabbat is one example. A day without shopping. A day without computer and email. There isn't one way to practice Shabbat. Um, traditional practices can be a wonderful uh, source to draw from. It's not an all or nothing. Um, But how can we take pause one day a week um, where it's not all about how many friends have I liked on Facebook and what have I bought and um, a a pattern of um, contemporary Western life that is constantly doing, 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 and never stopping. Um, So I think that's an important piece. Um, And I think um, there's some good thinking that's gone into how to transform bar and bat mitzvah to not be just a big party or a superficial, but really take this moment of um, transition as... um, engaging in a project of giving where young people choose a senior's home to go to once a week or somewhere where they're, making, where they're giving and making a difference, um, where their learning is connected to their lives. It's not some separate thing. Okay, I have to memorize how to read Torah. I don't know what I'm saying. It doesn't mean anything. Um, but really engage in this as a life transition moment. One more. One more. It has to be really, you know, you, it has to be really quick and short and so sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> we could also hear just to read the rest of the questions. Okay. Um, is it really just one more? Because if it is, I we're actually. What we're going to do is we're just going to hear a couple All of questions. questions. Okay, so they're in the room. Um, I'm wondering about social movements and social action, particularly in the context of Buddhism, Mm -hmm. and um, a phrase you've used a couple times, Michael, called creative response. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And if that's related um, to action Uh and uh, solidarity movements. Yeah. Can I just say one very fast thing about that? Uh, I've written books about it. Mm -hmm. 
I was very involved in the Occupy movement, and someone made a little documentary about that that you can find. But even better than that, uh, December 5th, I'm doing an evening at uh, U of T at Hart House in Toronto with an activist named Judy Rebick having a debate about spirituality and social action. And then uh, January 15th, I'm going to have a debate again at Hart House with uh, activist Naomi Klein. And we're going to debate about the same uh, issues. So uh, then you can hear about it. Are those going to be broadcast for those of us who don't live in Toronto? Uh, well, Toronto's the capital of Canada. So <laughs> you have to make your way there whenever you can. But yeah, I, as you can see, I record everything that I do. And I put it up online. Let's hear the rest of the questions. Uh, just with regard to teaching kids and learning silent meditation mm-hmm. um, and and this younger generation who is so um, hooked into texting and emailing and yeah. and I'm concerned that we're losing our ability to speak to each other mm-hmm. um, how do we how do we do that mm-hmm. these questions are so good yeah. <laughs> I don't think this is a simple one is there a tradition of Jewish meditation? Let's hear the more questions. Yeah. Um, my question is about the mourner's Kiddush. Kaddish. Kaddish. Mm-hmm. Kaddish right. It's fine. Um, it, was, it was one of the things that first spoke to me when I started. Anyway, um, because of the community. But the words themselves in the prayer book, like are almost meaningless to me. I just don't, I can't, there's nothing I'm taking out of them. Mm. And I'm wondering if there's other writing about mourning and, um, I don't know, not a very concise question at all. It's a great question. My question is about um, integrity of practice. Um, when you were talk- you mentioned that Miriam a number of times, and I found that very difficult to to know kind of what to do with that because um, my day to day life is very not Jewish. My partner is not Jewish. Um, the notion of can I bring a little bit back with me? into my home is something I, I, I you know try to, to work with a bit. And then I kind of the idea of, of how do you have integrity in the situation that I've created for my life that I'm not going to choose to change. How do you question is about um, resistance, and you said earlier um, that um, there should be resistance in our practice, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not sure what that means, mm-hmm. and what it means for my practice, uh-huh. I don't feel resistance. Uh-huh. Are you remembering all this time? <laughs> I want to say one brief thing about integrity. Okay. I want to say a brief thing about <laughs> technology resistance. Yes. To your spiritual practice, yes. Did you say Jewish meditation? Yes. Long history, yes. There are books. Um, what else? Such a good answer. I was just saying, cut it, don't worry about it. They're wonderful resources. Um, uh, I do want to say just something very briefly about integrity it's a construct. 
Judaism has always been evolving and changing and porous boundaries and periods of drawing things from other cultures and traditions and then putting up stronger boundaries and then being open. And, um, so there isn't one thing that is, that's Jewish integrity. And um, to be pushed on the question... To engage with the question um, is an invitation to learn, uh, is an invitation to check when is it my ego or my pleasure or aversion that's at the center of making decisions. Um, I think that's where community is really valuable. Um, Not figuring it out alone and being engaged with others. Um, Yeah, I think holding both. There isn't one right way or right answer. Um, We should wrap up. Yeah. Should we do a little song and dance? (laughs) Do you want to do the song or the dance? (laughs) Which do you want to do? I don't want to do the dance. Okay. (laughs) We'll save it for tomorrow then. Okay. (laughs) So let's have a bio break. Then we'll have a little time for a shorter practice. And then at 8.30, we're going to say goodnight to the people who are leaving. And... uh, give them a little guilt trip for leaving early. Uh, very easy to do in this room. <laughs> and then um, we'll all go to sleep. <laughs> it's the only thing I dwell on.